And Lord, we give you the praise and the glory Do your name. Hallelujah to the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Father, we just stand here taking in your grace and your mercy and your compassion. Lord, that you would come to us, sinners though we are, yet sinners saved by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are able to stand. And Lord, as we look into your word, we pray that it would give you uh, the honor uh, that is due you, and that we would uh, speak of things sacred in a way uh, that would allow uh, your glory to be made known here and to the nations we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please have a seat. So when I was uh, looking to do a little bit of research for this uh, particular message, I, I found out some interesting things. If you're a Texas buff, you uh, history uh, buff, you might appreciate this. Uh, otherwise, you'll, you'll get a little tiny history lesson. Uh, here, But in the 1830s, at the very beginning of Texas as we know it, dueling was actively discouraged. So General Sidney Johnston was known to actually have uh, knocked pistols from people's hands in the midst of uh, duels. But, as often is the case, when Sam Houston... Houston, for those of you who aren't Texas history people, he created a position called the Commander-in-Chief of the, all the armies of Texas. And so he appointed General Johnston to this place. In that place, General Johnston, above his colleague, General Felix Houston, although spelled differently, pronounced the same. Houston thought that he was better and so he challenged Johnson to a Johnston to a duel. So he accepted. And they met at the large oak tree known as the Dueling Oak, which is less than an hour from here, still there down Highway 59 towards Victoria. Now Houston was acknowledged by all as a crack shot would have killed Johnston on the spot. So they developed a new rule. They had to shoot from the hip. I don't know how you do that, but they did. And so it took six volleys each for them to do anything. And on the sixth volley, Johnston struck Houston's ear. Uh, but Houston struck Johnston in the, the hip. And uh, while it wasn't fatal to either man, Johnston lay near death uh, for several months before recovering. He went on to become a kind of a hero in the, in the South during the Civil War. There was another duel that happened uh, in the German Confederation. So if you didn't know about Johnston and Houston, I, doubtless you won't know about this one. The Great Sausage Duel of 1865. 
1862, following the, the death of King uh, Frederick William, I think they say Wilhelm or something like that, the fourth, Otto von Bismarck was appointed minister president. And he had to get past his uh, political opponent, a fellow by the name of uh, Rudolf Weichau, uh, Verkau, uh, to get funds that he wanted to restructure the military. And so when, when Bismarck pressed Verkau on his denial of military structuring uh, money, uh, Verkau responded, uh, this is uh, what he said, if the minister president has read the report, then I do not know what I shall say of his honesty. The truth is that the reserves in the state treasury are decreasing, that the means of carrying on the government without a budget are growing less, and that it was sought to restore the deficiency by a loan to be able to still sit by warm stoves. Well, so budget problems go all the way back. But Bismarck was incensed, and so he challenged uh, Verkau to a duel. Now, Verkau was also a pathologist. So he's a medical scientist, and so he said, since I've been challenged to the duel, I have the right to determine the weapons, to which Bismarck agreed. And so what he did was he got two sausages, and in one he uh, injected the trichinella larvae, and the other was perfectly safe, and he said, choose the one you want, and we both eat a very Princess Bride-ish, as remember, if you recall, Wesley offering Vicini Iocane powder. <laughs> if you don't know what that reference is, yeah, I'm not sure what, I'm not sure where to go with that one because I, I don't, I don't recommend movies anymore. But we'll say that one is a classic. So as one might expect. Bismarck uh, said, this is completely absurd. I'm not going to do that. And so he rescinded the challenge. So somehow or another, they both retained their honor and all of that. But the moral of the story goes back to Sun Tzu's art of war. If you're going to challenge someone to a duel, you'd better know who they are. And you'd better know who you are. Now, the Jewish leaders thought that they knew who they were, and they thought they knew who Jesus was. But they're about to find out that they are entirely wrong. After they told Jesus, we're not born as a result of immorality, implying, of course, that he was illegitimate, uh, it seems they already realized they were losing their argument. Remember I mentioned last week that when you're losing your argument, you go ad hominem, you go after the person, you don't go after uh, the issues at hand. And so they doubled down on their attacks. And in that doubling down, it led to probably, if not the most, then certainly within the top two of the most triumphant proclamations that Jesus ever made. So if you have your Bibles, electronic or otherwise, please turn with me to John 8, and we're going to read verses 48 through 59. John 8, 48 through 59. This is one of the texts that really helped me 
theologically because uh, as a new believer, I struggled with this notion that, that Jesus ever claimed to be God. He claimed to be Messiah, yes, but God, that's a whole different uh, story. And so as you try to figure out your theological uh, way, this passage was deeply helpful to me. John eight forty eight through 59. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know you that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you. Before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and left the temple. They had already been attacking him verbally to a degree that one would think that fists would be flying at this point, but Jesus was not that kind of a man. Of what greater um, offense than being illegitimate could they accuse him of now? <laughs> they find a way. I mean, not only did they say that he was illegitimate, they called him a Samaritan. Now, the closest that I can get to the meaning of the word as they applied it to, to Jesus is they were using a word that I choose not to use from the pulpit. Uh, but in English common law, it's actually a legal term regarding a child born out of wedlock. You, you see, you got to understand, historically, the Samaritans were a genetic mixture of the Assyrians and the Jews. And so this the, the so-called Pure blood Jews despise them. I, I, and I say so-called with reason. Uh, read Ezekiel 16.3 uh, and, and uh, read Ezekiel 16 and you'll find some interesting things out. But Ezekiel 16.3 tells us that God speaking of Israel, your father was an Amorite and your mother was a Hittite. Most likely a reference to Esau's wife who actually was a Hittite. In other words, they were saying, you're not a Jew. You're not a Jew. 
You got nothing to say to us. And then they step it up. Not only are you not Jewish, you have a demon. I mean, they were saying that he was mad, that he was unclean, that he was evil. Being a Samaritan is the same thing as saying that your father was a Gentile. Now, now we have to understand here that we're witness to some of the most vulgar attacks that could be made on a human being, especially in a culture that was doubtless face-based, that is shame-based, that is they cared much about appearance. And in that particular context, these were terribly offensive things to say. And yet, how did Jesus respond to these truly monstrous accusations? Well, he did so simply. He denied the charge, and he claimed that his mission was to honor the Father. And as they dishonored him, they also dishonored the Father who sent him. So this is a beautiful example of how to handle personal attacks. Because what Jesus does, amazingly, once again, his patience is seemingly endless. It is not. But it's an amazing thing to watch how much he will take in order to once again share the gospel. He offers the gift of eternal life to all who will obey his teaching. And for such people, they will never see death. I mean, this is what he has offered to us, that we would not see death, that we would instead see eternal life. Now, not only does uh, Jesus offer them life again, eternal life, instead of responding in kind to them. And and Jesus was not above harsh words uh, to these uh, people. But this, he's he's still ever trying because he knows that they're not the only ones listening. There is a silent audience to everything that you do and everything that you say. People who are watching, little or big, young, old, it doesn't matter. They're watching and they're taking life lessons from that. But he makes this extraordinary claim. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So you can imagine how staggering this was to the Pharisees and the the Jews at this point. It's like... What are you talking about? Number one, if I were to make promises like that, if you were to make promises like that, I mean, other than thinking me mad, you might think, yeah, you can't make promises that you can't keep. And yet, Jesus said that. And the Jews said to him, now we know, now we know you have a demon. And then he speaks of Abraham. And essentially, the bottom line here in 51 through 53, is that the prophets died, Abraham died. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? They, they're, you know, they're saying in their minds what's only logical, and that is, uh, do you think that you're better than Abraham? Do you think that you're better than the prophets? They all died. So how can you speak of not dying? Who in the world do you think you are? 
So the Jews at this point, they'd had about all that they could take. They just, the words of Jesus and the logic, they weren't wrong, by the way. They knew what Jesus was saying. And they were following his uh, logic. But if they're thinking, if Jesus can promise people that they will never die, then he would be greater than the ones who, in fact, did die. Now, uh, barring the Lord's return, one day each one of us will breathe our last. And our hope is in Jesus Christ. Our hope is that we could say, like the great evangelist D.L. Moody, on his deathbed, he exclaimed, Earth is receding, heaven is approaching, this is my crowning day. We're not going, listen, we don't get this as well as Scripture portrays it. We are not going from happy, warm, meaningful lives into the darkness, into the night. We are actually going from the night and the darkness into the day, into the glory of the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus attacks the very, uh, the very core of uh, their belief system. And when we've mentioned this over the last couple of messages, because that's, that's the driving thing that the Jews were holding on to, and that is, is that they had some kind of merit or favor because they were related to Abraham. They were all this and more because Abraham was their father. And so Jesus cites Abraham not as their credentials or credential, but as his. He's saying, okay, all right, you're calling Abraham your father. He's actually my credential. He said, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And he saw it and was glad. So, okay, now they are thinking they're dealing with this person that they've called uh, mad. Uh, you, can, you can see the, the dismay, the, the hatred that they would have in their eyes at him because he's now saying, Abraham saw my day and was glad. Not only did he see it, he had a response to it and about it. Jesus was underlining the fact that while their father was Abraham, going back a few verses, their spiritual father was the devil. The, the Jews are sputtering now. I mean, they can't, they can't take this. They can only see the, the, the physical. And, uh, I mean, they're vibrating, right? I mean, they're just, their hands are shaking because there's so much adrenaline because they want to they kill him already. And so, they're, I mean, they're like Nicodemus at this point, not in an anger or, or frustration, but just, Jesus, what are, you, what are you talking about? They could only see the physical. And so the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? I mean, Abraham had died, right, a lot earlier. Not just centuries, millennia. Okay, so Abraham's been dead for a long time. How can Jesus make the absurd comparison? 
that Abraham had seen him or his day and rejoiced. So in order to fully appreciate this, we've got to look back at the uh, Old Testament uh, just for a second. When Moses was sent down to Egypt to stand before Pharaoh, Moses was like, you know, I can't just go there and say, you know, uh, you know, whoever sent me and I can't identify. So what's your name? What's, whom shall I say has sent me? And so he asked this of God and God replied, tell him, I am who I am has sent you. So this uh, I am is far more significant than we realize. And uh, I'll explain just a little bit more about that so you realize it's significant. Hebrew speakers today, and we have some Hebrew speakers, they can uh, validate this. Do not say, we translate it into English, I am hungry, but they don't say I am hungry. They say I hungry. In Arabic, it would be anajoan, I hungry. Okay? We supply the is. They don't have an is. Well, that's not exactly true, but I'll explain that hopefully in just another. So they don't say the table is big. They don't say... You know, this room is big. They say the room big or the table uh, big. So you, you have, and it, there's an interesting thing, though, because Hebrew has a past tense. You can say in Hebrew, I was hungry. And you can say in Hebrew, I will be hungry. But you can't say, I am hungry. We supply the am. Okay. So when Jesus, uh, with the Jews, uh, when they see I am in Hebrew, what do they say? They actually say Adonai. In other words, what happened was Jesus, I want to get to what Jesus said, so I guess that's why I repeated Jesus twice. But when Moses Ask his name, God said, I am that I am. I am. And so you have an I am in Hebrew, but it's reserved for a person, not a state of being. It's reserved for a being, I guess, but not a state of being. And that background is important when you find out that Jesus says here, and you think Jesus doesn't know this? Of course he knows this. The Jews all know this. Everybody knows this. And Jesus said to them, now I realize this is a Greek, it's in the Greek, but nevertheless what he says, and you can tell by their response, they got what he meant. Truly, truly. So when Jesus says truly, truly, he is establishing one of these Elements of truth that are in a certain category of this is this is not simply true. This is crucial. This is essential. This is significant to what I am saying. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, Jesus used two distinct verbs that are very different forms of the verb to be. Abraham when he says, 
Abraham was, your version might say, or if you have some sort of a literal more, you know, give you some more options or, or, or whatever, it might say something like, before Abraham became, before Abraham sprang into existence, I am. He doesn't say before Abraham was, I was. He doesn't say before Abraham came into existence, I was already there. It's not what he says. He says, I am the one before Abraham. When the father promised Abraham that 2,000 years later out of his seed would come one who would redeem the world, the Messiah, the incarnate one. Now, we don't know to what degree Abraham understood this, but we do know that based on what God told him, he rejoiced and he believed and he was justified. And so Jesus is saying that when God spoke to Abraham, when he was telling these Jews, you claim he is your father, but when God spoke to Abraham, he was talking about me. This is incredibly significant, especially in how you look at how Jesus appears in the Old Testament. Jesus did not spring up in the New Testament like, oh, what is this? No, he is all through the Old Testament. And what he's saying is, Abraham rejoiced. You can't be the children of Abraham because you oppose me. Now, what Jesus is not saying was that, you know, oh, uh, uh, Abraham's still alive. You know, there's, uh, I don't know, there's some uh, strange cults that say the Apostle John is still alive because the, the Word of God says that, right, he's, he's not going to die. Okay, well, he died. Uh, but... So that's not what's being uh, said here. But what he's saying is, is that this initial revelation that God gave to Abraham, Abraham could see. Abraham could visualize it and be delighted about it. And now the promise is being fulfilled by the incarnation of the one who was before. Should I even use was? the one who is before Abraham, before all creation, who's the eternal word. I mean, here we are now introduced in real time to what John said theologically, almost theoretically, in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. That's what Jesus said. He said, ego me, I am. I mean, and the Jews listening to this, they did not miss the significance at all. It's one of the most pure, most sincere declarations of deity that Jesus ever made. If you ever struggle with the notion that Jesus Christ never claimed to be God, look deeply at this verse. And you, what, you know what you'll discover? you'll discover the exact same thing that his listeners discovered. And instead, though, I trust that you won't pick up stones to kill him. You'll bow the knee and worship him. 
Because that's what they did when he said that their anger was such that there is no trial. There is no nothing. There's no nothing. They went from zero to 120 in a nanosecond, and they were searching around the temple grounds. I don't know how easy it is to find a stone in the temple grounds, but they were searching around as fast as they could to find enough stones to kill Jesus. But it says that he left the temple going through their very midst and so passed by. This is the name that Jesus takes to himself, right? It can't be interpreted in any other way than it's a unique claim to deity. And in fact, it's one of the most remarkable statements in all of Scripture. Don't let anybody ever tell you that Jesus did not claim to be God because he clearly did. I mean, over Abraham's fleeting lifespan, as long as it was, to Abraham it was still a, a, a blink. It's still a fast. Jesus places his timeless present is. Jesus is now as he was being is then. I don't even know if I can say it that way. But it's a timeless presence that he has with you and with me. He is in, in that the, the second person of the Godhead has always existed, has always transcended time. And he is infinitely above Abraham. I mean, the I am here in 858 should take our minds back to the I am of 824. It's basically the same thought in both passages, namely that Jesus is God. And this carries us back to the fourth chapter of John's gospel, right? He's talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, and she asks him a question. Very, It's amazing, the discussion that they had. We talked about it in here. Are you greater than Jacob, who gave us this well in the first place? Well, yeah. <laughs> and doesn't this foreshadow the... the uh, when Jesus is in the garden and when the soldiers come to arrest him and after he was kissed by uh, Judas, this kiss of betrayal, he stepped forward and he asked them a question. Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am. And what happened? When he said that, they, they, all, they all fell to the ground. Jesus, we have a song that we sing, he could have called 10,000 angels. He didn't need any angels. He didn't even have to say the word, just a thought. Can you imagine the control that Jesus Christ has, the power that he has completely, entirely, utterly at his disposal. A wrong thought in the universe could disappear, but his perfections are such that everything that he thinks is perfect. It is whole in the sense of shalom. 
this power was released so strong that it knocked them down on the ground. And when the hearers that day heard those words, I am, they immediately recognized them as him taking. In fact, they stated in another place, why are you stoning me? Because you, a mere man, make yourself out to be God. Even as dull of hearing and an understanding as they were, they did not miss this. And we shouldn't either. It's very important. I've mentioned this before too, but I just, I just do think it's significant um, in that he just walked out of their midst. Why? It wasn't his time. I take great comfort in that uh, our times are in the hands of Jesus Christ, not in the hands of some form of chaos or Satan or anything else. They are in the hands of uh, the Lord. Revelation tells us that Jesus holds the key. I want to go back to something that I mentioned before, and this will draw us toward the conclusion of this message. I came out of a background that was completely unchurched. By the time I was 10 or 11, I was an atheist. I didn't have anything of faith until I was in the army and and the Lord uh, broke in and he allowed me to see. Many people are born and raised in the church. And so one of the concerns that I have is that there are some children who've grown up in a Christian home who think because mom and dad. Now, there's value in this, okay? I'm not saying there's not value. There's wonderful value. It is such a blessing. But if the child doesn't realize that their mom's faith or their dad's faith or their uncle or their aunt's faith or their brother or their sister's faith if they have any notion that that gives them credit before God, they have not understood the gospel. They have to be taught that God has no grandchildren. You have to be a son. You have to be a daughter. Yesterday, I can't believe this guy's still around. I suppose in some way it gives me hope. I think, maybe. But anyway, I read that Mick Jagger, uh, if you're not familiar with Mick Jagger, he's the lead singer of the Rolling Stones, that his children uh, were not going to inherit his $500 million. Now, on the one hand, I mean, that sounds harsh, and if I give him any credit at all, he must have some goofball kids Or, on the other hand, he's actually being wise about this, you know, because it might help them to live productive lives. One thing is clear, Jagger is is telling his children, uh, I'm the one that's rich, not you. (laughs) And so there is this element where we have to teach our children. 
In other words, we, here's, let me, he may not have been, well, no, he wasn't the best example in the world. It was just the most recent. We may have the riches of Christ in us, but we have to share that with our children. They have to be taught about God and sin and salvation because each child must personally become a member of the family of Christ. I don't want to hear anyone say, you know, I'm a believer because I was born in such and such a church. No, you're not. That's not what being a believer is all about. It's by coming into the family of God by faith in Jesus Christ. There is a tremendous temptation for us to hang on to whatever we can grab, whatever little rope might be there. Uh, but the only rope that will hold life is through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We can only fall and worship God. And as God gives us this day, regardless of your past, because I want to I want to put those two things together in your mind. That the God who became a human being, who suffered humiliation, and yet continued to offer eternal life, does the same today. I don't care if you are essentially in a duel with God. Trust him for your salvation. He remembers mercy in his justice. But there will come a day when he will stand as judge. And on that day, if you have not trusted Christ as your savior in this life, you will not spend eternal life with him. But if you have, then forever for you will be glorious. Father, we don't always understand uh, the things that come into our life, whether they're accusations, uh, whether they are harm, literal harm done by others, uh, whether it's a matter of crime or or other kinds of harm, we, we just have to have your son watching over us, giving us peace in what would ordinarily be a chaotically undefined, difficult life. But through you and your power, uh, we can have all that we need to live a life that's worthy of pleasing to you uh, and pleasing to you. We thank you, we praise you through Christ our Lord. Amen.